Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. I tell you, we sing songs like that, and I feel like I'm interrupting when I get up here. Uh, it is. <laughs> there you go. I'm not the only one. That, that's good to know. Turn to Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to continue on in our series. Try to finish up the second missionary journey this evening, as we uh, typically call it, and try to make sure that we uh, learn some lessons along the way as we look at Paul and Silas and the things that they accomplished on this second missionary journey. They started the journey with a lot of hiccups and hurdles and difficulties. Uh, they uh, immediately ran into opposition. Uh, Paul wanted to go one direction and the Spirit of God prevented him. Paul wanted to go a different direction and the Spirit of Christ prevented him. He receives a, a vision to come to Macedonia. He does, has a very seemingly limited amount of success in Macedonia. Uh, it just seems like there's been a lot of difficulties along the way for Paul, for the things that he is uh, trying to accomplish on God's behalf. And so the, the, the journey itself has not been one to, to, to write home about. Uh, honestly, it would, Paul was a modern preacher going about teaching and was supported by different churches and doing the typical, well, let me write a letter monthly to the church in order to let them know. We'd probably read the letter and go, ooh, is this the guy we want to be sending money to? Because he doesn't seem to be getting anything done. I mean, it, it, it just, it seems that way. It, it seems as if the, the, the challenges he's having are challenges he is not yet able to overcome. Uh, and I would imagine he's distressed, he's discouraged, and there are, there are difficulties going along. But Paul does have his habit, he has his way of doing things, and we see that from the very beginning of chapter 17. You turn there, Acts chapter 17, I'll read the first few verses there. After they passed through, uh, passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, uh, which that little detail there, the way that's worded makes greater weight to the, that, the fact that there wasn't one in Philippi. There, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaimed to you is the Messiah. You know, we're, we're told kind of his, his modus operandi. Like he, he, this is his way of doing it. He goes into a town, he finds the synagogue, and there he teaches. And he takes their scriptures, he takes their understanding of who the Messiah was, and he goes through, and it seems he systematically proves to them from scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah they've been expecting. And that works in some places. And it doesn't work in other places. And here he has some success. It says there, verse 4, some of them were persuaded. 
They joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. So he has some success here as he goes into Thessalonica. It seems that things are going to go well. It, this is one of the first real glimpses of hope that you have in this missionary journey until you get to the next verse. Because immediately Paul starts running into trouble. Some of the Jews there start stirring things up. It says there in verse 5, they do it because of jealousy. They don't like that Paul is coming into their town, meeting with their people, and convincing them of things that he believes and not things that they believe. And so there becomes a, a, an opposition here. We're, we're not going to deal with this. We're going to make sure that we Paul out of here. Uh, we don't like what he is trying to do. So it says, they form a mob and they start a riot in the city. Now again, if you're in my Luke class this morning, those kind of details are important. Because those kind of details let you know who's responsible for the riot in the city. The Jew, not Paul. And that's important. That's what needs to be understood as you go through this story. They started a riot in the city. They attacked Jason's house. They didn't find who they were looking for, so they attacked Jason instead. They bring Jason uh, toward the magistrate, and they say, he's causing trouble. He's stirring up things. He is acting in ways that are contrary to Caesar's decree. Now, I find it interesting that there's really no details here. And they're preaching another king. Who's their king? Jesus, who is not here. <laughs> how, how can you preach a king when the king is no longer on earth? Well, that's not going to be threatening to the Roman people. But that, that's where they're going with this. They're trying to accuse, at this point, Jason. But Jason and all the men who came into town stirring up trouble, they're trying to accuse them of treason they are acting contrary to the Roman law. We need to stop them. We need to get rid of them. We will do whatever we got to do to get them out of our town. So par for the course, right? This is what Paul has continued to face everywhere he goes. And notice the opposition he faces, not Roman opposition. It's not opposition from government or from leaders or from soldiers. It's just inevitably, in every place, opposition by the Jews. They are jealous. They don't like this, this subset of Judaism rising up and claiming that there's a Messiah. Because if there's a Messiah, then the current governing body of Jews no longer plays a role. They don't matter anymore. If there's a Messiah and he sits on the throne of the Jewish people, we don't need Jewish rulers anymore. We have the Jewish ruler. And so Paul and Silas get sent away by night, and it takes us to this very famous passage that we know about the Bereans, and that the Bereans were a very noble-minded people because they, they were willing to compare the new teaching that Paul and Silas were there teaching, and they would compare it to the Scriptures. Uh, they, they weren't ones who were just going to uh, follow whatever Paul said, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, sink, sink, yeah, sink, 
making sure I had that expression. I'm having to go through my fishing paraphernalia. Yeah, uh, they, they weren't going to just accept it. They weren't going to just blindly follow. They were going to compare and make sure that what Paul and Silas were teaching actually matched up with what they knew the scriptures to teach. And I find that amazing. Paul is an apostle. You don't get much more authoritative in the church than an apostle. Yet Paul and Luke here commend these Christians for not just accepting what the apostle said, but comparing it to what they knew was true. That's good. That's what we should do. Much, that's absolutely what we should do for uh, people, you know, preachers who make mistakes all the time. Uh, we should be, doing, be, be noble-minded like them. It goes on to say here that consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. Uh, it's interesting on this particular missionary journey how many times women have been specifically mentioned as responding to the gospel. The very first convert we have in Philippi and Macedonia is what? Lydia, a woman. You get to Thessalonica, who is the predominant amount of people or a group of people who responded to the gospel? Women. Now we get over to Berea, women. Uh, I, I don't know necessarily what the significance of that is other than to say this. In the church, for some reason, we have a, a, a sentiment that women don't, aren't as important. And that's just not true. I mean, here, the Bible goes out of the way to point out the fact that it is the women who are willing to come and, and believe and to follow and to support and to be ones who are teaching and ones who are taking care of uh, the needs. It is interesting as you continue on in the second missionary journey, women continue to play an important role. Uh, for lack of better uh, example, when you get over to, let me point it out to you, so I'm not just telling you. Uh, you get over to chapter 18 at the end, and you notice down in verse 26, this is telling the story of Apollos, which we'll deal with in a couple of weeks. But I want to point this out. Verse 26, he began speaking boldly in the synagogue after Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Now it is significant, particularly in Greek, that word order often dealt with uh, the concept of importance. You would put the most important thing first. And it is interesting here that it lists the wife before it lists the husband. Now, I'm not saying the wife usurped authority. I'm not saying any of that kind of stuff. I, I see no reason to think that anything wrong happened here. But the idea that Priscilla is listed before Aquila, the wife is listed before the husband, is significant, especially on the tail end of the women believed, the women believed, the women believed. Uh, and so there seems to be an importance being placed here by Luke on the women. I say all of that to say, all of us 
have roles to play in God's kingdom. All of us. It is not a man's church. It is not something that we necessarily need to throw out gender roles and gender responsibilities. I'm not arguing for that either. But I want us to recognize that even in Scripture, it makes a big deal out of women and their role in becoming believers and their role in teaching others and their role in responding to the gospel. Uh, Women are just as much a part of this kingdom as men are. And that was particularly significant in this culture in which this book was written. The Jews from Thessalonica decide they haven't caused enough trouble, so they travel down to Korea and cause trouble there too. Uh, They want to make sure that they're stirring things up and making Paul get as far away as possible. So at this point, Paul and Silas get taken, uh, I I think maybe just Paul, uh, says there, verse 10, as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away. And uh, nope, that was what happened in Thessalonica. Then you get down to verse 15. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. And so Paul is taken away from the danger, and he is escorted away from Berea all the way down to Athens. And it seems that Silas and Timothy stay there for a little bit, but they they quickly follow. So Paul gets over to Athens, and he's alone. But that doesn't stop him from working. He's still going to get out there. He's still going to teach. He's still going to be walking around the marketplace. He's still looking for opportunity to share the gospel with people. And it says, while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was so full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He didn't pause. He didn't say, well, I got to wait till my team gets here. I got to wait till, till Silas is here to back me up. He, he, he gets busy. He gets down to Athens and he notices the, the culture and the environment in which uh, he needs to do work and, and he gets to work. That rampant idolatry is a problem. So he goes to the synagogues where there are God believers and he he talks with them about Jesus the Messiah. But he's being heard so much that they decide to bring him to the Areopagus so that he can teach the Gentiles. They want to hear about this Messiah, this Jesus that he's talking about. They want to hear the story and the fulfillment of prophecy and how it all works together and and why they should believe the things that it says here that they should believe. So he gives what I consider to be the greatest apologetic sermon in all of Scripture. And it is worth us taking a few moments to read. If you're not there already, Acts chapter 17, I want to start reading in verse 22. Acts 17, verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heavens and earth. 
He does not live in shrines made by hand. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live, we move, we have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Therefore, having overlooked these, the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, what makes this sermon so appropriate, so interesting, so um, just a masterpiece of, of preaching is that he, he does several, he has several different tactics in the way that he does this. One is he meets them where they are. He knows what they believe before he gets started. Now he knows they have worshipped this to an unknown God. He knows that they have confusion and recognition that they don't yet understand everything and that's where he begins. He kind of says, you know what, let me fill in the gaps for you. Let me, let me help you understand what you don't yet understand. I, you know, he uses the term ignorance in there, and we use that term as an insult. I don't think he's insulting them by saying that. He's saying, you've got a gap in your knowledge that you're admitting you have because you have an idol entitled, the God we don't know anything about. Okay? Let me tell you about the God you don't know anything about. Tactic two. He takes what they don't know to eliminate what they do know. Here's what I mean. They had gods who were creators. They had gods who were in control of nationalities. God who were, who, gods who were in control of nature and the world around them. They had gods that were individual gods, different gods that were responsible for different things that Paul talks about. What he says is, no, the unknown God, the one you don't know anything about, he's the one who did all of that stuff. He took care of all of those needs. He's powerful enough as God to be sufficient to be the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, the provider of everything, the one who accomplished all of these things. That's the one God you don't know about. So by doing that, what he has done is he has eliminated the need for all the individual gods in preference to the one God who can do it all. Do you, do you see how he did that? Okay, tactic three. Then he takes them a step further and says, okay. so if we've got a God you don't know about, that's where we'll start. We've got a, a, a God who can do all the things that, that you think you need a bunch of gods for. No, no, there's one God who can do all of that. And that God doesn't need you. You need him. 
he, he ended with their needs. He ended with, as, as you call in business term, a call to action. He ended with, hey, if you believe what I'm telling you, and, and the support of what I'm telling you is, he gets at the very end, the resurrection. But if you believe in what I'm telling you, that there is this unknown God who could do all of these things, and that God doesn't need you. He doesn't need shrines. He doesn't need some form fashioned by man out of gold and silver and stone. He doesn't need all the things that you do for these gods. He doesn't need your little token gifts. He doesn't need you to bring food to his, his temple every day. He, he, he is completely not in need of you at all. Well, that was unique among Greek and Roman gods. There was an understanding in Greek and Roman mythology that if the humans did not give homage or credence, if they stopped believing in a particular God, then that God would cease to exist. And, and there's some truth to that. When something doesn't actually exist, but then nobody believes that it exists, then it no longer exists. Like, that makes sense, but that, that was part of their theology, part of their mythology, is that the gods needed people to give them credit, to give them homage, to give them praise. Well, Paul says this God doesn't. He is sufficient without you. He has put you where you need to be, not you where he needs you. And that was entirely different. That was something that was, that was foreign to them, that there could be a God who didn't need them, a God who was so sufficient with God that we didn't make a difference. And so he said, if you want that kind of God, all you got to do is repent. Just, just come to him. Let him know you want to serve him. And, and, and by the way, if you, need, if you need evidence, look at the resurrection. He gave them a verifiable historical event that had eyewitnesses that they could go and, and if they really wanted to know this God, they could verify that this God truly existed because there were people alive who, who, who were witnesses of that. And so he gave them everything he needed to, to give them a reason to believe. See, what we do wrong oftentimes when it comes to defending our faith is that we spend all of our time talking about the evidence. So we would spend all our time talking about the last sentence of this sermon. Or we spend a lot of time just combating. Well, what you're saying is wrong. What you're saying is wrong. What you're saying is wrong. And Paul doesn't do that. Paul meets them where they are. He combats, and not in a combative way, he basically says, let me help you see why this God is greater than any of the gods that you're worshiping. And then he moves into, so here, if you really want to know a God that, that is that powerful, that is that self-sufficient, that is that good, then you need to repent. And here's how you can know it's true, a little bit of evidence. It, it's a masterpiece that we need to learn from and how we can go and help people understand. We need to help them with, we need to meet them where they are, we need to give them motivation, we need to give them what they need to do, and we need to give them the evidence to believe it. Simple enough. Probably should have put all that on the screen, but, you know. 
It was more fun to talk it through. So it, uh, that, that is, that is a, a, a beautiful display of the way he would go out and he would teach the, the, the truth of the Messiah. And that was, a, I think, a very different way than what he would have done in the synagogue. In the synagogue, he would have taken their scriptures and explained to them how Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies that they knew, that they, were, they, they understood, they, the prophecies that came from God himself. Well, that, that is more of a, hey, you already believe in the one true God. Let me give you the reason why you should believe in his son as the Messiah. But for the Greeks, they didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have all those other things. They had no, no background in this religion and this idea, even this concept of who God is. So he had to start way before that. And so he does. And it produces mixed reactions. As you look at the end of that, that little section there, it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule. But others said, we'd like to hear from you about this again. Different people had different responses. Now, what's interesting to me is Paul's response. Paul left their presence. He left. And here, here's why I think that is. You know, if... if if I, as a modern preacher, were to go and deliver a sermon to a group of non-believers, and their response was, hey, can you come back next week? That was fascinating. I'm not sure I'm entirely on board with you yet, but, but my friend over here absolutely thinks you're right on track. Uh, but we, we really want to hear more about this. Can you come back next week and share some more with us? What do you think I would do? Man, my schedule would be cleared for next week. Like, I would be thrilled about that. Paul doesn't. Why? He already gave them the evidence they needed to believe. He already gave it to them. I mean, what's he going to do more than what he's done? Bring some eyewitnesses with him of Jesus having resurrected? Make a telephone call to Jerusalem. Hey, Peter, we need you over in Athens, like, like tomorrow. Like, we need you here. No. He gave them what they needed. If they wanted to believe in Jesus, they had what they needed to know to believe in Jesus. If they wanted to follow after Yahweh, they had the evidence in hand, in place, verifiable as to whether they should believe in Yahweh. He already gave them what they needed. So he moves on. And I think there's, a, there's some truth to, or may, maybe some weight thing. It does go on to say, however, some people joined him and believed, uh, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Isn't that interesting? It mentioned woman again. You get into chapter 18, and you got Paul meeting some friends, Aquila and Priscilla. At this point, it lists husband, then wife. So, it, again, maybe I make too much of that when it gets over to the end of chapter 18. It 
list Priscilla first. But he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and we know that they share a, a common way of making money. They are tent makers, just like Paul is a tent maker. They seem to be displaced. The, they seem to, their home is actually in Rome, uh, but they have not been allowed to be in Rome. And if we time all of this just right, then that is probably because of the uh, the Roman government had kicked out some Christians for a short amount of time, uh, really not just Christians, but Jews for a short amount of time, and so Aquila and Priscilla would have been a part of that. Uh, he, again, reasons in the Sabbath, on the, uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is his custom, it's his habit, that's his way of doing things. And Paul is, again, rejected by the Jews and moves on to teach the Corinthians. It, again and again and again, he has faced rejection after rejection after rejection. Many of the Jews do not accept, including uh, Crispus. Uh, you, you look through the story here. Uh, you've got the same thing. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, um, uh, is mentioned here as being one. Uh, excuse me, they do believe. Uh, Crispus is one who uh, decides that he believes in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians do respond to the truth uh, when, they, when they hear what Paul has to say. Paul ends up staying here for a year and a half, uh, which is a, a long time to stay in one particular spot. Uh, it says many of the Corinthians, when they heard, they believed and were baptized there in verse 8. So finally, you've got Paul hitting a place he's having some success. He hits a place where, where things go well, and, and he camps there for a while. He stays there for about a year and a half. Uh, but then Paul ends up facing some opposition again. Uh, he is brought before Gal uh, Gallio, who is the proconsul, and there, uh, he is called to, to defend himself. When Paul's about to open his mouth, it says, and I love this, Gallio says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing, there was a matter of a serious crime, then I, I'd put up with this. But if these are questions about words, names, or matters of your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge in such things. So he kicks them out. Uh, I, I love that. Now again, if you're looking at this from the perspective of what we talked about in our Bible class this morning, the idea that Gallio threw out the concern about matters of the Jewish faith, does that not help support the idea that maybe Caesar should do the same thing? Because what Paul is dealing with is he's just being brought before Caesar about issues of the Jewish faith that have offended the Jewish people. Uh, and so it just gives more evidence. Uh, it's kind of like citing court cases. Uh, if you're a lawyer trying a case and you cite other court cases where it's gone in the direction you want it to go in, it gives you greater weight in the defense that you're making over the issue. So Paul ends up having, heading down to Ephesus. Uh, there he taught in the synagogue. He debates the Jews. Many wanted to hear more. Uh, he does plan to come back and teach there again, but he goes back to Jerusalem and then heads back to Antioch. So a couple of lessons for you. One is this. Uh, if we're following the, the path that Paul takes, 
Notice in every place he goes, and it really stands out in this part of this second missionary journey, when he goes into a new town, he starts in the synagogue. He starts with people with whom he has God in common. And even when he is speaking to the Gentiles, what's the first thing he starts with? Well, here's an understanding uh, that we have in common. There's a God you don't know. Let me tell you about him. We tend to, unfortunately, start with the differences. That's where our first conversation comes. You know what? I know you all worship with instruments and we don't. Let's have a conversation about that. And then we're shocked that it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, you essentially start from a place of argument, even if it doesn't turn into an argument, and then you're shocked that, it's not, that, that nobody has their mind changed, nobody's willing to listen, nobody's willing to, to, to talk to you about these religious things anymore because they think you're fishing for an argument. Paul doesn't do that. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I think Paul just recognizes you're going to get further with somebody if you start in a common place. Because that's been my experience, and that's been the experience of most people that I know. Not everybody, but most people. Secondly, I think part of the reason is, is that that's the easiest place in a world without yellow book or yellow pages or white pages to go find fellow believers. Go to the synagogue. Well, we know every Saturday there's going to be a group of Jews there gathered together reading the law well, what better place is there for me to go and find people who are willing to listen than a place where people have already gathered together for the purpose of discussing and listening? And so he goes where the people are looking. I, I, I find that to be important. Because one of the things that I, people, preachers particularly, like to argue about is should we go through the, you know, the trouble of trying to uh, just go out there and knock on random doors, or should we uh, go try to find a group of people who might believe common things? Or, you know, how, what's our process for evangelism? And, and most people, because it is the easiest answer, is, well, let's just go knock on doors. Uh, not saying we shouldn't. I will say Paul didn't. Paul wasn't knocking on doors. He was going where believers were assembled. And so maybe that is something we should try to do is get involved with the groups of people who are already have some sort of background that will give us common ground and then help guide them toward a better understanding of the truth. Uh, and there are lots of places where you can do that. Uh, so if you, you want ideas on how to do that, then talk to me afterwards, and maybe we can uh, even try to set up some processes for doing that. But I'll also say this. While that is Paul's method, how often does it work? It worked some in every place. But how often did it work entirely? You know, people are not good at accepting truth. Just not what we're good at. 
And so don't be surprised if you do get together with people and say, hey, you know, I know we both have a common religious background. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about the Bible. And they're like, mm, nah, no thank you. I had a, a minister say, uh, or reportedly said to me, he was invited to a Bible study we were doing in a community, and he was a, a minister of a denominational church. And his, his answer as to why he wasn't going to come to the study is that Bible study isn't really my forte. Okay. Then I can see why you don't want to come. Like, you know, uh, and, and, and I mean, that, that, I'm, that is not a, I, don't, I hope, not a common idea uh, among people who are presenters of the Bible. But it, it is, uh, it, it was interesting to hear that. That is the way a lot of people feel religiously. You know, it, if you come at them with a little bit of, of, of you know, grandiose confidence of I'm going to teach you the truth, so let's sit down across the table and I will show you all the answers you're missing. Don't be surprised if their, if their response is, mm, that's not really my forte. Okay? Uh, be okay with that. Move on. Find somebody who will be willing to listen and investigate the truth that you're sharing with them and talk with them. But don't give up. Go from place to place if you need to. Also, you have here, and I've preached on this before, but you have here this concept, I think I have, uh, you have here this concept of three different responses to the truth. The Jews in Thessalonica, they only cared about their tradition. They did not want Paul coming in and stirring things up. They did not want Paul to, to, to heap up a following after Jesus. They were jealous in the way people were responding. And so they were more concerned about uh, their holding on to their way of life than they were about truth. There are some people like that. You have others who only care about new ideas. It doesn't matter what the idea is, they want to hear something new. They don't like all the old traditional ideas. Uh, they want to hear some new tr uh, interpretation of the Bible. And so that's what they're excited about. That's all they want to hear. So if you said, hey, let's do a Bible study through this very well-known and easily understood book, well, you know, nah. But if you say, hey, I have a new idea, they're like, I'm in. Like, let, let's, let's go. Doesn't matter what it is. I just want the new idea. Some people are like that. And then you've got the noble-minded ones who are concerned about truth. That's what they want to know. They want to know truth. And that's, that's what we should be. And that's what we should look for when we are doing the work that Paul was doing, find the people who are willing to diligently compare what they're learning to what they already have confidence in and make the, make the parallels and make the conclusions and be brought to Jesus based on a, a solid understanding. Uh, that, that's what we need to be looking for in people. And then lastly, the truth about God can affect anybody, but it will be rejected by most people. There's just truth to that. 
I, I don't say that to be a defeatist. I don't say that to say we shouldn't try. I don't say that to give any sort of negative feeling about evangelism or about the work that we are tasked with doing as God's people. I say that because our expectations need to be set correctly. Even Jesus didn't convince everyone. So we won't either. But he did convince some. And so will we. Even Paul did not convince everybody. But he did convince some. So we need to be the kind of people who will be willing to go from town to town or from place to place or from Bible study to Bible study or from friend to friend and be willing to have the conversations as we look for those noble-minded Bereans among our circle of influence. We've got to look for them. Find people who are willing to listen. We've got to be willing to go the extra mile to present the truth in a way that they will be willing to hear it if we can. Okay? And I am not a fan, personally, of a, a, a set of studies, a curriculum that you lead people through in order to convince them uh, expertly of what they need to believe. Because I find people fall away from that method just as often as they respond to it. I am very much a believer in meet people where they are and talk about Bible things that matter. It's what we all need to be doing. And it's something we're all capable of doing. There's not a single one of us in here who is incapable of sitting across the table at a Panera Bread and having a Bible discussion with somebody. I'm not saying be a masterful teacher. You don't have to be. You have to be a friend who loves their soul more than you love their friendship. That's all you got to be. If you can be that, if you can care more about their soul than you, than you do about your earthly relationship, then you can have a conversation that can change their life. And better yet, change their eternity. And so I hope we will be the kind of people who are willing to have those kind of conversations with people and share the truth without giving up on it. Uh, it, is a, it is an incredible thing and an incredible responsibility we've been given. And I encourage you to take that responsibility personally okay I, and i hear people all the time well adam I, I just my circle of influence has gotten so small understood i don't think paul had a single person he knew in athens when he got there do you it doesn't talk about him meeting up it doesn't talk about him finding his his uh uh, you know, that, that buddy that he grew up with in elementary school or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, it, he went there and he looked around and saw a need and started having conversations. We can do that. That's nerve-wracking. It is frustrating. It is angering sometimes. It is absolutely an adrenaline rush to do it because you never know what's going to happen next. 
But I tell you, if we were willing to talk about Jesus the way we talk about the other things that we are passionate about, we'd find a way to have those conversations. And so I encourage you to be willing to do that. Uh, Paul's example is just so great because it helps us to understand that all of us, any of us, can do this if we're willing to put put our hands and our minds to the task. So I, I look around the room and I, 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 I see workers. I see people who are, who are capable. I see Bible students. Uh, I'm going to be honest. My wife and I were talking about this on the way home today. Not about this particularly, but she made the comment of, this is a Bible studying church. We are. Uh, we, we've been involved in several different groups over the years, and I have never yet been involved in a congregation full of people who love the Word of God and study the Word of God as diligently and successfully as this group. So I commend you for that. But let me also meet you where you are and take you the next step. Take that knowledge and use it. Use it. Start a study in your home. Invite your neighbors. You know what? Might be that none of them come. But at least you tried. And you can try again six months later. Uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, invite friends over. Not for a bait and switch. Tell them what they're coming for. Don't, don't, I'm going to feed you supper. And, well, while we have you here, like, like don't, don't do that thing. Oh, that, that's the worst. Don't, don't do that thing. Have them over with the intention of, I want to st- share with you what I love so much about the gospel. I, I just want to share that with you. And you know what? They might say no. They might say yes. You know what happens if you never ask, though? You never get that opportunity. Paul went into every town he went into looking for opportunities. And I want you to take that grain of truth with you as you leave tonight. Paul looked for the opportunities. Shouldn't we? Because I guarantee you God will put them in your path because it is his will for people to know. If you're not a child of God, I want to encourage you to become one tonight, put on Christ in baptism, have your sins washed away. If you are a child of God, I want to encourage you to let's put our hands to the task of making an eternal difference in the lives of everyone around us. It's a great and wonderful thing he's asked us to do. Let's do it together. If you need the invitation to get your life right, please come forward as we stand and sing. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at Edwards Lake church.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast 
or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.